What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. 22 million black victims of Americanism are waking up and they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And that, that, which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. Good afternoon and welcome to Black Talk Radio. This is the live drive at 5. Of course, my name is Scotty Reed, and I'm broadcasting from behind these enemy lines. Uh, I do want to apologize for coming on the air late. Um, got totally knocked off the Internet just five minutes before the program, which is when I usually log in to the show. Um, had to restart my modem and everything, but guess what? We're back on the air. They can't keep us off the air. So yeah, this is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind these enemy lines, uh, where they have this saying called liberty and justice for all. And it's really a farce. Uh, anybody that pays attention to the news headlines would know that that's not the case when all of these killer cops, uh, keep getting, um, not indicted. You know, getting away with all of these murders. So yeah, that's just something they like to say. And I'm going to keep reminding them of that. Um, we have a interesting program coming up for you. We got a previous guest, uh, coming on, brother Christopher Irvin, who is a Baltimore activist, also hosts a radio program in the Baltimore area. I believe it's called Let's Talk About It. Um, and he co-hosted, uh, along with another brother. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking to him just a bit, um, in conversations, phone conversations. He raised some interesting points about how criminal records, um, and expunging these criminal records is not really being talked about in the black community. And as I wrote, uh, criminal records is a way for them to legally practice economic terrorism, just like, you know, also in the area of housing, uh, if you are a convicted felon, uh, some places will not rent an apartment to you. Um, yeah, you can buy a home, but you know, if you can't find a job or if the only jobs you can find are low paying jobs, then, you know, that's really, uh, not going to help you. So, uh, that has been a long time tool that they have used to legally discriminate against people. Uh, we know that the primary targets of police are black people and other non-white people like Latinos and Hispanics. And so, yeah, we need to expose that. Uh, we need to, um, talk about ways to combat that. And so Christopher has been talking about, you know, these expungements. Um, we'll also discuss the real possible reason, uh, that the rich white 
successful male, Mark Wahlberg, is seeking to have his violent hate crime convictions expunged by way of a pardon. Uh, so I, I guess you can't get uh, certain kinds of felonies expunged from, from your record. Of course, you know, Chris will fill us in on any information we need to know in that regards. But what is the real reason? Did, why does Mark Wahlberg want to get his violent hate crime convictions um, taken off his record by way of getting a pardon? Um, so uh, just for information, uh, Black Law's Dictionary defines expungement of record as the process by which record of criminal conviction is destroyed or sealed from the state or federal repository. So I'm looking very forward in just about five minutes here, uh, speaking with Brother Christopher Irvin about um, we looking at that as a tool to combat uh, racism and white supremacy that's being practiced legally, uh, practiced legally in the United States. While I may not say that in, in their language, we can see the impact that it's having on our people. So I think it is a, a worthy topic of discussion to have. Um, once we talk to Brother Chris, we're going to look at a couple of items in the news that caught my eye. Uh, proxy racism is a term that I came up with because I thought House Negro was like in the realm of name calling, um, being disrespectful, uh, just not constructive, uh, not a constructive word. Um, I mean, it, it, we know what it means. Uh, it has been in use for many, 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 many years. You know, uh, Malcolm X talks about the House Negro in, in a couple of his speeches. And um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about proxy racism and proxy racism is when a non-white person either under coercion, under force or being rewarded to be a tool of racism. And so there's this black sheriff up there in Minnesota, the state of Minnesota, and he has attacked the NAACP and he's engaging in victim blaming. Now, myself, uh, Max Parthas. And Johanna and Elijah, uh, we all produce and co-host the Wednesday night program, New Abolitionist Radio, talking about 21st century slavery and human trafficking legally by way of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And we had an opportunity to go back and forth with this particular sheriff and uh, have a conversation with him. I can see that our conversation with him had no impact as he's doubling down on his proxy racism and attacking the NAACP. Um, American Sniper, uh, they've been hosting book study um, sessions on the context of white supremacy, another program that uh, airs on blacktalkradionetwork.com. They also have their own station. Uh, you can do a Google search on that. Um, also, you can find uh, ways to get to the station through our website, of course. But they've been hosting these book studies on the book about American sniper Chris Kyle. Well, you know the film is out now, produced by uh, this man. What's, what's his name? I can't think. Dirty Harry Clint Eastwood. Yeah, uh, it's making it's breaking box office records. And so, anyway, the guy who killed chris kyle uh his trial is coming up and um they are concerned about all of this publicity is going to prevent this man from getting a quote-unquote fair 
trial. Uh, John McCain, he's slamming all the critics of American Sniper, of course. That's to be expected. I, I won't have much to say about that, but I'll just share some other comments he's, he made about all of these people that's calling out this coward, this racist, terrorist Chris Kyle, um, and criticizing the movie, you know, that he is the subject of. And then Fidel Castro, um, has issued some statements in relation to, uh, the, I guess we can call it the steps towards normalizing relations with the United States of America. But Castro, you know, while he isn't, um, he isn't against the normalization of relations with the United States. Uh, he is also not being a fool. So I will share some of his commentary as well. Um, now I didn't plan to discuss this, but, um, I'll try to make a note to a mental note to remember, but there's going to be a protest on February the 1st to highlight inhumane conditions inside of Alabama prisons. Uh, I was, I came across a press release that was sent to me and, um, I published it just, you know, about 15, 20 minutes ago on the website. Uh, we'll try to schedule somebody for later this week, see if we can fit them in and, uh, talk to them about this, uh, protest about the inhumane conditions inside of Alabama prisons. The, uh, Free Alabama movement is in the lead of, of these protests and these are prisoners who are on the inside. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, they listen to the program. They sometimes will call in. Yes, they do. Um, and you know, I frequently communicate with them on, uh, Facebook. So, um, I think that is something that needs to be highlighted as well as all of the, um, abuses and inhumane conditions that are existing on in America's uh, prison plantations. All right, so again, we should be joined here in just a bit. Let me check my um, phone line, make sure I got the lines open uh, so that we can get Chris uh, in in uh, once he calls in. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to take a short station identification uh, break, and then we will come back. We should have Chris on the line. Uh, if he calls in, then we'll just... Uh, Cut the break short and jump right into uh, what Chris has to say. I think what you're trying to ask is uh, why am I so insistent upon giving out to them that blackness, that black power, that black pushing them to identify with uh, 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 black culture. I think that's what you're asking. It, it, I have no choice over it. In the first place, to me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, black people. I mean, and I mean that in every, every sense, uh, outside and inside. And to me, we have a culture that, uh, is surpassed by, 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 by no other civilization, but we don't know anything about it. So again, I think I said this before in the same interview, I think, uh, at some time before, my my job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. 
And uh, what you just heard there was some commentary on celebrating blackness by Nina Simone, uh, who, of course, has joined the ancestors. Um, I do believe we have uh, Mr. Irvin on the line. Do we have you, sir? Yes, sir. Scotty, how are you? Uh, I'm doing just as fine as I can be or as well as I can be living behind these enemy lines. So, yeah. <laughs> um, feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So we had a phone conversation as I was telling the listeners about a criminal record expungement. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an area that you feel that people are talking enough about or focusing on as a tool to combat, uh, legalized racism, um, discrimination and the fact, you know, that it also contributes to, uh, poverty in this country. Uh, just to, just to set it up before we get into, you know, the information that you want to share, I'm going to share just a bit of this PBS report that we both saw, um, about, you know, how the so-called past crimes are driving job seekers into poverty. So do you mind being patient with us while we set it up? No, no, go ahead. I'm listening just like everybody else. Okay. Every afternoon at his dining room table, 35-year-old Ronald Lewis does his homework. By day, he's a student, learning to fix heating and air conditioning systems, and he looks after his three kids. He also works the night shift, running high-pressure boilers at a chemical plant here in his hometown, Philadelphia. I'm a father. I'm a hard worker. I'm very ambitious. He's also got a criminal record. A decade ago, Lewis had two major run-ins with the law that he says have interfered with his job prospects ever since. In August 2004, he was picked up during a drug arrest alongside his brother. Lewis was carrying a 9mm handgun. Days later, he was nabbed for stealing a pocketbook from a department store. So what was that like? And what happened at that stage after they arrested you? It was life-changing. It was, wasn't a good feeling. It wasn't a good feeling because you feel like you disappointed your family and you disappointed your mother, which is the most important person in my life. On the suggestion of his lawyer, Lewis took a deal. For both cases, he pled guilty to a total of three misdemeanors and was sentenced to five years probation, no jail time. At that time, were you worried at all about how this might impact your future? No, because the lawyer had told me, oh, it's only a misdemeanor, it's never going to hurt you, don't even worry about it. So no, I really didn't think that much into it at that point. A short time later, Lewis began looking for new work. He was overjoyed when he got a tentative job offer from a building company. I worked there for about a month, was honest with him, told him, you know, what was on my record. They still hired me. We working. So I worked there about a month. They called me in the office and said, um, your record came back. We got to let you go. And that was it? Even though you had, you had disclosed everything, you were never dishonest in never the process? Never dishonest, never they were so they looked so scared of me. It was a shame. What do you mean? When they, we got to get you out of here, like you got off the prom, the premises. Lewis says that scenario played out over and over again. Later on, he had two offers that were then revoked. He had promising phone calls with another company that went nowhere. He says the only explanation he received the existence of crimes in his past. Four of those companies declined to discuss Lewis's case with us. There are people who are going to watch this, mm-hmm. and they're going to say, you know what? You weren't a kid. You were 25. You were an adult. You knew what you were doing. Absolutely. And that this is a consequence. This is a consequence of your actions. If you show me one person that haven't made a mistake, then I won't apply no wells. 
Nine in 10 companies in the U.S. conduct background checks, and with rap sheets widely available online, advocates say people with criminal backgrounds, sometimes just an arrest record, no conviction, are being blocked from employment. They say it's driving a growing number of people into poverty, and that Ronald Lewis's case is hardly unique. It's very common. We see clients come and in. And I'm, I'm going to uh, stop it there. I have actually posted the entire video, which is about eight minutes long. Um, and one quick mental note I was making, and I certainly want to get your commentary on what you heard there, but not only I feel are, are they driving people into poverty by not giving them uh, employment, by discriminating against them because of past uh, quote unquote crimes. And certainly the, the man that was featured there, he owned up to it. He said that he was guilty. Uh, he didn't elaborate on why he committed those crimes, but I call those, uh, crimes of survival. Okay. Crimes of survival where you're already living in poverty and you do whatever you have to do to, uh, bring revenue into the home. And so not only is it, in my opinion, uh, driving people into poverty, but it's driving them back into a life of quote unquote crime. Because, you know, if I was an individual without the means to support myself, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not going to starve. I'm not going to die up under a bridge from exposure. I'm going to do whatever is necessary to feed, to feed myself and, and, you know, clothe myself and get a house over my head. Now, I hope that I'm never in that situation, although I've been close to it in my past because of losing a job unjustly and then unemployment running out and couldn't find another job. But, um, yeah, um, I'm going to do whatever's necessary. I'm not just going to lay down and die. Um, I'm not excusing crime. I'm just trying to explain why some people engage in things they might not otherwise do. Christopher, your thoughts on what we just heard? Well, Scotty, you just you pretty much laid it all out. Um, well, what I'm trying, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get people to understand is that we are in a system. We are in a, a cycle, a created and intentionally created cycle. So, what's happening is that people are being drawn into or, or, or pushed into a system that they are then stuck in for life. Um, to get right to it, when we talk about criminal records, you cannot get away from that. People think, well, you just get in, get, a, get your record expunged. What we're finding out now is, first of all, in every state, the process is different. The uh, the crimes that are able to be expunged are different. And so, well, well, before I even move on to that, let's start with um, the premise that, that, that you stand on and that I agree with, is that we need to get the exception out of the 13th Amendment. What does that have to do with all of this? Well, it's a continuum. There is a continuation of the same things that we think we got away from. As you talk about on your show all the time, slavery was not ending. And um, the way I, I try to, refer, to um, explain it is that slavery was a socially accepted practice for a long time. The 13th Amendment made, a legally, made it a legally accepted practice. In that amendment, you had the inaction saying that slavery and or involuntary servitude shall be abolished except where up the party shall have been duly convicted. Now, what's normally um, taught to kids and, and, and reverberates in the halls of academia is just the fact that slavery was abolished by way of the 13th Amendment. They never talk about 
those 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 words that come after except where of the party shall have been duly convicted. And so prior to the thirteenth amendment, they were called slave codes. All of the reasons that you could essentially grab a black person, normally a black man, off the street and lock him up or beat him up or whatever the case. After the thirteenth amendment they changed them to black codes. After black code we had peonage and convict leasing. And then we had collateral consequences which is a term right now in in this conversation of criminal justice reform. And then after collateral consequences, we get all of these private prisons, and then we walk right into 2015. There's a continuum. So we need to, we need to address this. We need to study this as, as, as a forensic study, just like you would study any crime scene. When we walk into 2015 and we see something is wrong here, we have to study what happened before we walked into this, this, this day and time. And who did it? So with this criminal justice system, we have now people who are essentially put back into slavery by the legal means of that exception clause. So when we talk, again, criminal justice reform, how do we reform this system? There's a lot of things that we can do that would help. And a lot of people are working hard at it and studying it. But the thing that, in my opinion, the thing that can be done that will help the most to restoring not only the individual, but the families and the communities is this issue of expungement. Now, currently, I'm, I'm in Maryland, and the criteria for expungement in Maryland is that the crime has to be one of a few misdemeanors. Um, there's legislation on the books now that would expand that to include a few more misdemeanors. If we're really talking about expungement, and the, first of all, first we have people need to understand that um, we're talking about crimes where judges have have given sentences that have an end. They're not giving a life sentence. So if a person has a three-year sentence, they are still saddled with that record for life. You don't finish your time all the way to the expiration date, and then you get to start over. It doesn't happen that way. That's a fallacy. So we need to expand the criteria for expungement. Expungement is different from a pardon. It's different from clemency. Clemency is done at the federal level. A pardon is done by a governor. Um, and it's up to the governor's discretion. So this is why you see so few pardons done, and they're usually done to someone who has donated so much money to right. whatever party or individual ca- um, campaign. Right, right. Expungement is a process that begins by filling out an application that everyone would have a right to, and it should be in his clearly laid out criteria. You have to stay out of trouble for X amount of years. You've already, you know, served your whole sentence to include parole and probation to the expiration date. State our trouble touch. When we expand the criteria for expungement, it is an end run at that exception clause. This is a way to get people out of that uh, perpetual punishment of, of slavery. And again, it allows them a chance to start over. One of the things or uh, key words that you mentioned there, uh, forensic, study this from, you know, the 13th Amendment from a forensic point of view. And, you know, forensic is a word that's often used in relation to investigating crimes. And, you know, I would suggest, I would not suggest, but I would emphatically tell people that it is a crime, that this is a crime against humanity. And not just because I, that's my opinion, but under international law, according to the human rights, you know, treaties that the United States have signed, if you look at, you know, what that treaty says about slavery, it says slavery shall be abolished in all its forms. It doesn't say except for 
as punishment for crime like the 13th Amendment says. No, it says slavery shall be abolished in all its forms. So I think it's very key, you know, um, that you use the word forensic. Uh, it, it is. It's a forensic investigation of a crime. Scott, if I could piggyback on the point that you just made, as much as it is a violation of human rights, it is also a violation of the laws of this land. If you look up perpetual punishment, mm-hmm. that's supposed to be, constant, to my studies anyway, it is constitutionally illegal. What In, in fact, what happens is the person re, relives or revisits that punishment over and over and over again. The, the, the courts have currently said that collateral consequences which are the rights that are actually lost by the individual, the rights and privileges. Um, they, they have legalized collateral consequences through a bill, ironically, which came on the heels of the ratification of the voting rights bill. But in effect, what you end up then with is the individual loses their rights and privileges. There is no legal, and this is what I've asked people in the field when we have the conversation. My question to them is, what is the legal basis for the continued punishment of any American citizen beyond the expiration date of a sentence given to them by a judge in a court. And no one can answer that question because there is no legal basis. Now, again, within that discussion, we know the difference between rights and privileges. But, again, as it directly relates to the rights, and, and, you know, I've, I've been a guest on your show before, privileged to be, and we've discussed this before. The cornerstone rights to being a citizen in this country have always been outlined to be the right to vote, the right to sit on a jury, and the right to uh, possess a firearm, protect yourself, your family, and your property. Now, the right to sit on a jury is not recognized as a right within the um, Constitution, within the Bill of Rights, but it is recognized as a citizen's right. And those are the three rights. Again, only those three because the person retains all other rights. Freedom of speech, they still need one no matter how long your record is. They need a warrant to go in your house, warrant to go in, you know, under those circumstances. They still have to bring you to court to face your charges, um, any new charges. You still have so you, you're talking about habeas corpus. You still have your speedy trial rights, even though they get violated left and right. So who chose these three rights, and why did they choose those three? Well, again, this, this statute, this uh, legislation was passed on the heels of the Voting Rights Amendment. So in a country where they didn't even want black folks to vote, you then make it legal and say, okay, we're going to give them the right to vote. But now here's a way we can take away the right to vote. Here's a way we didn't want them armed in the first place, so here's a way we can disarm them. And here's a way we can keep them from sitting on juries because if you remember going all the way back to Amistad, I saw that movie, <laughs> they never wanted us to be able to be one, you know, among the peers who made these decisions in a court. So there's collateral consequences. They can be there's a lot of reforms that need to take place within the criminal justice system. This is a race-based system, race-based legislation, and in a lot of circles of academia, they they, they want to you know skirt that. They want to be on the outskirts of that conversation. They'll dip in just enough to say that it targets black and brown males in particular, but then they come out and want to go back into an academic, a law, a a, a, a you know, just one of those type of discussions, and they want to stay away from race. This is all race-based information. This is all race-based stuff. So the the thing that we can do that will have the most impactful um, effect, the thing that we can see a difference on the ground if we pass this, is to expand the criteria for expungement to include felonies, and at the very least, nonviolent felonies. 
I would certainly agree with that. Um, uh, but as I was also taking mental notes as we were listening to that clip from PBS, they also mentioned that you don't even have to have a conviction, but just be erased, arrested. Where, where, where's the legal justification for that? And why aren't these legal scholars and, and these representatives, you know, uh, pointing that out or having that discussion? And that's a rhetorical question, but yeah. Exactly, because, because of the intention of it all. And, and, and I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, on the issue of juries, I mean, again, I've only been called to the jury once. My mom, mm-hmm. um, has never been called to a jury. She doesn't have a criminal record. I don't have a criminal record. I got a few arrests. So I've only been called to sit on a civil trial. And, um, you know, uh, we do want to talk about, um, have this continued conversation about jury nullification. But jury nullification, you know, um, if we're not able to get on the juries, then, I mean, it's hard for us to combat sentencing people to slavery on laws we don't agree with or, or you know, where we judge the law to be in- incorrect or oppressive or uh, racist or whatever. And so, I, I mean, this is just very, very, uh, let me put it this way. They knew exactly what they doing. These are refined racist white supremacists. And, you know, it seems like they have us going in circles, fighting in all directions, but our quote unquote leaders and those people put out front, uh, to, you know, be talking about these sort of things that they're not really talking about anything that's going to solve the problem. Um, like H- Hank Johnson, Representative Hank Johnson want to reform the grand jury process, make it public, make it, um, you know, uh, yeah, make it public, make it so that a special prosecutor is always appointed. And I'm like, you know, uh, okay, what difference does it make? If the grand jury is public or private, some of those people would love to be identified as as one of those who set a cop free. You know, they would be celebrated as heroes in their circles. Uh, what difference does it make if we get a special prosecutor when we saw the special prosecutor in uh, Ohio play defense attorney uh, for mm-hmm. the cop who killed John Crawford III? And and so, uh, again, man, I mean, it's like that's why your research and people uh, like you who do this sort of research and try to have these conversations and put them out there is very important. Well, I I thank you, Scotty. But this is stuff that, you know, what you it it takes all of us, just like just like the system that is mounted against us. We need to form the same type of plans and, and, and strategies as well. We need this information. Someone needs to do the research. It takes someone to get this information out. You just touched on something that was uh, uh, profound, to say the least, when you when you talked about jury notification. That's one of the things. I had that discussion with um, some attorneys a while back um, at an attorney convention. And I said, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons that that right is taken away. We, If we can't balance a jury or bring that true peer representation to a jury, we can't affect the outcome as much as the, the – um, the independent uh, prosecutors are needed. It's the jury that makes the decision, unless it's a uh, unless it's a judge uh, a judge trial mm-hmm. as opposed to a jury trial. And so we we need that. And we it, it's almost like it goes to the discussion of citizenship. And I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I always address this. You know, when people say, "Well, you know, I'm not I'm not a citizen. I'm not a part of this country." And believe me, I get that. I get that feeling myself often. But the fact is. If you have a driver's license in your pocket, you are adhering to the laws of this country. If you pay t- 
taxes, whether you want to or not, to take it up. You are, you know what I'm saying, and you're born here. You you are a citizen. And when we kind of stiff arm, when we Heisman Trophy that, we are playing into the position that we were placed in. I claim my citizenship. I claim my rights, and therefore I can claim everything that comes with them. Up to and including equal treatment under the laws that they wrote, that I know that they wrote to be against me, but as long as I, I, I attempt to um, raise my voice within the system, again, it's not saying that I subscribe to the system or I agree with the system, but if somebody's punching me in the mouth enough, I'm not going to say stop punching me in the mouth. I'm going to fight back. Most definitely. Uh, speaking of, of reforms and, um, again, you know, this criminal uh, record expungement, again, I certainly yes, agree with you that this is like lifetime punishment. Uh, uh, yes, you know, it is cruel and unusual punishment. I will also classify it as that. But lately there has been um, some news buzz about, Cory Booker, a Democratic senator, I think out of New Jersey, and uh, mm-hmm. Rand Paul, the senator out of Kentucky, and like they're supposed to be working on some kind of joint bipartisan legislation to quote unquote reform the criminal justice system. Um, in in as much as you might have read about it or investigating it, are they proposing any you know things that are going to stop uh, this lifetime punishment? Yeah, let me let me tell you. Um, reg- reg- I'm not a party person. Like I said, I don't I don't really subscribe to politics as much as I want to know what's going on in it because it affects my life. Right. To be honest, Rand Paul has been talking about these type of reforms for some time, and Cory Booker kind of jumped on his bandwagon. So they together have come up with what's called the Redeem Act, um, all capital letters: R E D E E M. Uh, redeem act and it is about the return of rights and status um the status being the citizenship in other words you re- you get to reclaim your rights your all of your rights and um including the second amendment right um as well as your right to serve on juries and then vote um we know that all states return the right to vote in one capacity or another except for four kentucky being one of them which Rand paul is from um the, you know the, this redeem act is a substantial thing it's similar to uh, Indiana has just passed the most progressive um, expungement bill in the country right now. Minnesota passed another one recently, and Vermont um, enacts legislation in uh, January of 2016, um, all related to expungement and true expungement, which will allow people to, um, after they've served their time and stayed out of trouble for a clearly defined period of time after that, gives them the ability to expunge their records. And I'm depending on if you have time, I'd like to read you some information. Yeah, we that we, I have, we have time. We have as much time as you need, bro. But but I tell you what, let me just take a, a quick station identification break. I'm overdue for one, and uh, then when we come back, uh, you can read that. Okay. You're listening to the Black Talk Radio Live Drive at Five. My name is Scotty Reed. We broadcast this program every Monday, Tuesday. Thursday and Friday at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Okay, um, please um, go ahead. But before you read that, let me just get some clarification. 
Now, you came on to talk about uh, criminal expungements and, you know, uh, how these criminal records are driving people into poverty, driving people back into a quote unquote uh, life of crime and just really imposing a lifetime punishment on these people. So are you saying that this Redeem Act that is being co-sponsored by uh, Rand Paul and Cory Booker? Uh, would work towards that goal of, of of restoring those rights and ending this lifetime punishment? That's right. That's right. And not only will that one do it because because of the the way the, the way the legislation works, you have federal legislation just like uh when when the president talks about uh repealing minimum mandatories and now they talk they have uh, decided to expand the, the criteria for clemency. You know, but that's done at the federal level for federal offenders. And so what Rand Paul and Cory Booker are talking about is something that I believe is going to be instituted at the federal level, but each state can can also push for its own legislation. So okay, so if, if it's passed, if, it, if it's passed at the federal level, then people on the ground in their individual states need to start pushing for it because that their federal legislation is only going to apply to people convicted of federal crimes, right? That's right. That's exactly right. You know what I'm afraid is, is going to happen, Brother Chris? Okay. This is what I, I, I'm afraid is going to happen because I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen mm-hmm. with Rand Paul's father. Because of something that happened 20 years ago. Now, tell, tell about it now. We trying to, people make mistakes in their past and they're being punished for a lifetime. But because Ron Paul was connected to this racist newsletter over 20, 30 years ago, uh, regardless if what kind of legislation he was pushing or if he was saying that the death penalty is racist and the drug war is racist, people wasn't trying to hear that. Because they were right. focusing, um, and I'm talking about non-white people primarily, and mm-hmm. white people pr- primarily, white liberals would use that, will keep bringing that up to keep, right. you know, the non-white people from supporting the legislation, not supporting the person or whatever they might have done in their past or whatever, but looking at the legislation for its face value. And I'm seeing the same thing associated with Rand Paul. You know, they keep trying to connect him back to his father. Oh, we can't connect you to the racist newsletter, but we're going to connect you by way of your father. And 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 I'm afraid this is happening. Oh, they're going to say, oh, he's in the tea party and, and this and that. They won't even pay no attention to Cory Booker, but they'll just be, oh, he's a racist. He's in the tea party. Let's not even pay him no attention or anything he's trying to do. We can't support that. And that's what I'm, I, I re- have a real concern about that happening. Well, here's, here's the thing about the whole process. If we remember the um, Saturday morning cartoon, I'm Just a Bill, and we know that while that was the way the process works on paper, the real way that the process works has a lot to do with money and corporate interest. But at the heart of it all, that basic way of the process works is still, still very accurate. And so what, what moves legislation more than anything really is the buy-in of the people. When you show up, when you're getting at your local legislators, and again, I know this process is crooked, but the more we stay away from it, the more it can be affected by those crooked forces. We have to, have to, have to raise our voices, get involved, and show the faces of this. So I often compare this to the um, gay rights immigration um, issues. These were two um, demographics of marginalized people, the people in these demographics who were able 
to get some traction and make, make you know make some headway would pretty much keep quiet. They don't didn't want to draw attention to themselves and, and possibly lose any of the gains that they had made up until that point. At some at some uh, at some point in their in their struggle, they realized that you know what, there's enough of us that we can affect the process in this country. And, it, and with immigration in particular, I'll never forget there was a march on one day that they had very well coordinated. You, had, you saw a split screen, not just in half, but I believe it was in quarters. There was a march in um, New York, in Florida, in, in Southern uh, California, and in one other location, somewhere in the Midwest, all at the same time. And people were able to visually see how many people there were. And what that effectively what that did was bring more people out of the shadows. And they realized that they had political power, whether we want to call it voting power or just power, um, economic power, they, they realized the power that they had within the system. Now, I want to go back um, to, I think there were two different times when we could have realized, and I'm talking about black people in particular who are predominantly affected by this uh, criminal, uh, criminal justice system, we could have realized the power that we have in the system. The first time was the Million Man March. Too many media outlets went out of their way to say that not a million people showed up. It wasn't was it a good turnout. It wasn't how well delivered was the message. It was all about a million people didn't come. You see what I'm saying? It was everything to show that not that many people came out and to devalue the process. The other time was the Black, the, the Black Friday boycott. The first time the Black, boycott, the Black Friday boycott was spoken of, was right after the uh, Mike Brown situation, uh, Darren Wilson, excuse me, situation out there in Ferguson, Missouri. The first time we heard about that, you know, when that whole thing was going on, we started talking about the economic boycott. And on the morning that the economic boycott was supposed to start, all of a sudden we got the Ray Rice issue. Ray Rice took over the media. Uh, a video was released at 4 a.m., 4 a.m. on a Monday. As if this was, mind you, the issue at that point was four months old. And it took over media when everything was all about, and obviously social media was recognized as being very effective in mobilizing attention to the Ferguson issue. And so we saw the media start to coalesce and decide that something was, something different was going to happen because the economic boycott could be a big deal in this country. On the heels of Ray Rice, we got Adrian Peterson, we got who else? We got Ebola. <laughs> we got all of these things that were that were the the face of whatever. Remember with Ebola, um, Mr. Duncan was then the face of Ebola. Adrian Peterson was the face of domestic violence. Ray Rice, uh, a child abuse. Excuse me. Ray Rice was the face of domestic violence. We saw all these black males being the face of something negative in this country. Well, we were talking about going forward with the economic boycott. So let's, let's move forward. We get to Christmas when it was on again as far as the economic boycott. When it was enacted, I just and it was amazing. I just heard it last night. They said that one in six people spent less than what they intended to spend uh, during the holiday season. But what that means is five out of six intended to spend less than they did during the economic season. So we have to think about all of the tangents attached to this conversation and, again, as you said, how it's intentionally done. And it, as long, again, as long as we stiff arm this process, again, I understand not wanting to be a part of the process. I feel that way every day that I breathe. 
But again, the fact is, if you want to change something that's happening to you, you have to actively do something about it. And that's, that's just where I am with it. Do some uh, reverse COINTELPRO? Yes, sir. And um, infiltrate the system, you know. And, and um, so, yeah, I. I, I Who sat by the door? Exactly, the spook who sat by the door, Sam Greenlee, the book, and um, you can watch the film on YouTube for free. Uh, it's up there, and they tried to uh, silence that film as well. Um, now, um, you were going to read something uh, before we went to break. Um, we were talking about, you know, this legislation, the uh, uh, Redeem Act, I, I think is what it's called. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll actually pull that up, too. I wanted to read you uh, from Race and Justice News. Uh, put out by the Sentencing Project on Research and Advocacy for Reform. Um, they put out a piece fairly recently, and it's on criminal records. Uh, that at least this section of the article is entitled, Criminal Records Produce Widespread Economic Barriers. Um, before I read it, what I, what I really want people to understand, for those who don't know, who live in the communities, um, who have large amounts of people who return from incarceration, etc., it does not benefit the community to marginalize someone from the process. It does not benefit the community if someone live, comes back to a community, live in a community, they finish the time on parole and probation, whatever the case, and then for them to not be able to get, not just get a job, because that's, that's where we're getting tricked to. A lot of companies will say they hire ex-offenders. And for any company who says that to me, in fact, I, I directly asked the person representing the company, I said, don't show me someone, don't show me an ex-offender who works for you. Show me someone in management who you hired at the bottom and you allowed them to matriculate through the process. Because what we also see is people who have been with these companies for years still in the same bottom seat of position that they were when they came in. Not to mention the mention the, uh, conversation that's being had to not raise minimum wage. They want to keep them Mm -hmm. at them low slave wages. That's right. That's right. So when someone when someone is not able to increase their productivity, it hurts the community in a number of ways. First of all, again, people need to be able to provide for themselves and their families within that community. That's what drives a lot of the petty crimes we see, the house break-ins, the car break-ins, and everything else is because of people's inability to, to, to simply provide for themselves. But the larger thing is we have to remember that the the amount of income that you have directly impacts the amount of food that you're feeding your kids. That sounds like something that you would say, well, that's, you know, that's obvious. But then we're looking at the difference between that balanced diet, that proper diet, and that fast food diet, that cheaper, cheaper, um, more harmful diet. Even outside of that, you can extrapolate it further. In our communities where you find high concentrations of people with criminal records, you also find the least amount of services find the poor, the, you know, the worst schools, the worst resources within the schools, the poorest transportation, the roads are bad. Because when people cannot recognize their economic potential, they are not paying as much in tax revenue. Tax revenue is what pays for the social services in your area, not social services as in welfare, but again, what type of books are in the schools in that area? Are there books in that school? Is there heat in the school? What are the roads like? How often do how often do the buses run? Are they staffed properly? Tax revenue pays for all of that, and that tax revenue is taken from the people who live in those areas. Not to mention taking away the right to vote. Therefore, they're looked at as a, a person who can't fight back through that process as well. 
absolutely. They they have no voice in the process. Mm-hmm. But if I could, now what I was going to read on, again, criminal records produce widespread economic barriers. And it goes on to say that criminal records cause significant obstacles to economic security. According to the recent Center for American Progress report, one striking year out, how we can eliminate barriers to economic security and mobility for people with criminal records by Rebecca, I'm sorry, by Rebecca Vias, that's V-A-L-L-A-S, and Sharon Dietrich. As many as one in three Americans has a criminal record. I want to say that again. As many as one in three Americans has a criminal record, many of which never resulted in a conviction or only for a misdemeanor or minor infraction. People of color are disproportionately affected by criminal records. 49% of black men and 44% of Hispanic men have been arrested by age 23. People with convictions face barriers to employment, housing, public assistance, and education. Uh, that's the point that I just made to you. Right. People with convictions face barriers to employment, housing, public assistance, and education. And what it doesn't mention here is that it, all of those areas are funded by tax dollars. So it goes on to say these barriers adversely impact not only individuals, but also their families, communities, and the entire economy. The U.S. loses an estimated $65 billion per year in gross domestic product due to the unemployment of people with criminal records. To mitigate these effects, the report recommends that non-conviction records be automatically sealed or expunged at no charge that minor records be sealed after rehabilitation is demonstrated. Further, the report lists policy recommendations regarding criminal records for federal, state, and local governments, employers, and colleges and universities, along with suggesting sentencing policy reform and increasing federal funding for reentry services. They also go on to address the fact that um, there should be expungement for felony records as well, but that's further on in the article. Again, this was... Uh, going back to the top, race and justice news by the Sentencing Project Research and Advocacy for Reform, um, dated January 27, 2015. And I will forward this to you as well, Scott. Thank, thank you. So I can um, share it with um, our contacts through social media. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it's to me, uh, yeah, it is, man. It, it is. When you just look at the totality of it all, I mean, just every barrier um that is erected you know and, and it's not like it's anything new it's something that has been going on uh, as a part of the continuation of slavery um you know again if, if a person can't participate in the process if a person can't feed his family if a person can't um get an education to improve his opportunities uh if a person can't get housing i mean it's, it seems to me it's designed to put them right back on a prison plantation where then their labor will be exploited by either the federal government, the state government, or increasingly these private corporations. I mean, in, in our research uh, for New Abolitionist Radio and our group moved to abolish 21st century slavery, which you are a member of, you know, we're seeing major corporations, Target, Walmart, uh, Sprint, Verizon, Wendy's, McDonald's, all of these big Fortune 500 companies are utilizing prison slave labor in their business practices in some form or fashion, whether it's a Walmart that is directly using prisoners to deconstruct or decompile or break down 
uh, returned goods so that it can be repackaged or whether it's indirectly where you have a McDonald's that's using a contractor to make uh, uh, utensils or uniforms or something, you know, uh, um, that they that's being uh, used in um, McDonald's. So, I mean, it's all it, it, again, if people would wake up and see. Um, that slavery was never abolished and see this as a continuation of slavery and not mm-hmm. some kind of uh, post-Jim Crow nonsense or a new Jim Crow or something. No, it's the same old Crow. You know, exactly. it's the same old thing. Exactly. And, and, and I think then people might become more alarmed that then they will put pressure on these people, a, a, as you suggest. You know, even though we may not classify ourselves as Americans, because I certainly don't wear that label. I, you mm-hmm. know, don't call me no African-American because I'm not American. I do not classify myself. But I am forced by way of force to participate in this system. So if they're going to force me to pay taxes, they're going to force me to get a driver's license, if they're going to force me to uh, uh, register my nonprofit Black Talk Media Project, then, hey, I might as well uh, since they're forcing me to be a part of the system, is to uh, push back from within the system. Well, Scott, let me let me point this out too, because what we've been talking about thus far, so your listeners will sound like a lot of uh, legislative, political, um, you know, it, it's all reality. But I don't. I want to make sure that we 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 explain how this reaches into their immediate lives. Mm-hmm. When we talk about police brutality. Um, a lot of people want to discuss, want to talk about outlawing police brutality. And again, I agree with that and with that. But the, the reality is that brutality, police brutality is already outlawed. It's called assault and battery. Right. So, so what facilitates, what allows, what, what causes or, or, or helps police brutality to occur so that it's not viewed as brutality by the courts? Again, this is the first, if you, if you notice, where did we ever get this, this moniker, number one suspect, number one male? All of a sudden, that's the black male. Once you get that record, this is why the first for the first charge, even if there's no evidence and the public defender won't, you know, is, is taking forever to get to the person, they say, you know what, just cop. Just cop and you can go home. Some people, cop, never serve a day in prison. You know, nothing. Get bailed out of jail before they even get there. But once you have that record, you are effectively locked into that system for life. Mm. And then once once you confront a police officer confronts that individual and they, they they pull up the record, why is it after they beat somebody up, kill them, whatever the case, the first thing you see on the news is, is the individual's record. It can be from 20 or 30 years ago. It had nothing to do with that engagement. Right. All of a sudden, because of the rhetoric used to paint who the bad guy is, who the boogeyman is, now you are facilitated, and you know what? You make you can the, the officer can do whatever they have to do to that person to uh, to 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 rein them in, to get control of them. And this record shows what that person is. It is just it is just used as rhetoric. It's yeah, more it, political it's rhetoric. It has nothing to do with who that person is at that time or why they were engaged by the police. Right? It's demonization. It's propaganda. Um, and just to underscore your point you know that that is the intent of in the media they always want to pull up the person's record if they have one but hey we don't get to see if that cop has been accused of police brutality or, right. you know in the past what's in his record okay what's That's in right. that jacket 
you know, in, in the police department. No, they never bring that up. Um, but even when you don't have a record, in the case of Tamir Rice, the 12 year old who was gunned down mm -hmm. in Ohio, they pull up his mother and father's record. You know, mm -hmm. and the media talking about, well, did their record, they, you know, have uh, uh, arrests for domestic violence? Did that contribute to uh, Tamir Rice being gunned down by this cop? You know, and, and in the case of Michael Brown, you know, uh, from if I recall correctly, he didn't have a criminal record. So then they pulled this video from this store that allegedly, supposedly is showing a strong arm robbery that was never reported by the store. That's right. And see, Scotty, here's the thing now. Because for people who, who, who will think, well, you know, we need to know what somebody did 10, 20, 30 years ago, long ago. Here's the thing. If they didn't have the ability to do that, what would they have to, they could only then examine the facts of the situation at hand. So if they couldn't put that video of Mike Brown up, then it would be all about that engagement. If they couldn't, if they couldn't put up Rodney King's record, before they beat the hell out of him and, and showed that, then all they could do is talk about why they stopped him, what happened. To, you see what I'm saying? Then it has to be all about that moment. Mm -hmm. And then we take a totally different you know, view. At this point, even people in the black community who may know the individual are able to be convinced that, you know what, well, they might have been doing something with that record. They, they, must, they, probably, they must have been doing something to get beat like that. See how that, that's been played on us to, to, to the point now that we don't even trust the people that we know and grow up with. Right. After and, the media gets done with them. And we're engaging in this, this post-traumatic stress syndrome um, that often is seen with battered spouses. And we're, oh, we just act right, you know, if we just dress right, if we just right. walk right, you know, if that's we just right. talk right, um, then we wouldn't be victims. And that's just very unfortunate. And, and it points to a mental illness, in my opinion. Let me ask That's you right, this. Scott. Let me ask you this. Why do you think this rich and successful white male with all these movies coming out of Hollywood, all these businesses that he got with his family, restaurants and things, man, not hurting for no money. Why is Mark Wahlberg seeking to have his violent hate crime convictions expunged? Because obviously uh, his record hasn't prevented him uh, from, you know, uh, participating in the system? You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question, Scotty. I wish I could answer it with some intelligence. Um, I don't know. My suppositions are one of two. Either um, it's, it's, he has some uh, want to get into um, hunting and therefore be able to get a, a firearm legally or something like that, or uh, my other supposition is that just that, you know, he's he's represent someone has contacted him from uh, someone who supports this uh, want to uh, reform criminal justice. They support expungement, things like that. And someone who is as high profile as he is would be a perfect uh, 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 icon for that. I mean, you look at, we, you mentioned earlier, I think you mentioned, well, you didn't, you said, uh, you said something that made me think of it, though. Orange is the new black that just won awards and everything. And I met the creator, and I said, no, Orange is not the new black. Black is the same old black. But the thing is, when you put someone like that in front of an issue, and to her credit, she does talk about all of this um, kind of in the same way that we do, the injustices of it and everything else. But when you put a white face on it, 
then we then we bring in the liberal progressive ear who who's inclined to listen to the voice of someone who looks like them. And so that's that's I mean, those are the only two things that I can think of. Either he either he's dealing with the actual effects of that and that he wants to get into something that caused you know, that he's currently prohibited from, or he was just the perfect face for the issue to put out in front of it. I mean, I can't think of any other thing that, that would be holding him back. And he, he in all has, of the movies that he's been in, he's able to handle, even though they're props. Right. You know, because they're not actual firearms, it hasn't stopped him there. And like you said, he has the finances to do anything else he wants to. You know, on that, I have seen, I have seen stories of where, you know, these underground rappers that haven't been discovered yet, um, have these firearms. And even though they're props that these people are going after them, I've seen stories about that. Um, you know, that just came to my mind as you mentioned that. Um, but here's another way I want to look at that though, in terms of proxy racism, cause I'm going to be talking about after I get through speaking with you. And by the way, if anybody has any questions for, for brother Christopher, or, or you want to comment, you can do so by calling 530-881-1400, access code 549-032-pound, hit star six and the number one on your keypad. Now, in terms of, of proxy racism, which is a, a, a term that I coined that describes a non-white person who under coercion, um, economic reasons, um, whatever reward is, is engaging as engaging in racism as the proxy of a white supremacist. Um, perfect way to a simple way to give an example is a non-white. And this is a real world example. This comes from the news headlines. There was a non-white person who was hired by a white building owner to be the manager of the building. And so whenever black people came out to ask about if they had any open apartments, this non-white person would say to them, no, we don't have any openings. Sorry. Um, and then when white people came out, oh, they had all these units open. Let me show you a unit. And it was actually white. It was an organization that had targeted this building because they had complaints and they wanted to gather evidence and prove that, you know, black people, non-white people were being discriminated uh, in housing from attaining apartments. And so why would that non-white person do that? Well, I'm sure he's being paid very well. He probably gets a free apartment and whatnot. And, um, you know, so that kind of explains. That's an example of proxy racism when you are the tool of racism. Um, later on, I'm going to talk about this black sheriff up there in Milwaukee or one of those counties in Minnesota who's attacking the NAACP. And myself, Max, and Johanna actually had a conversation with him about his role in 21st century slavery and human trafficking and him bl- uh, uh, black victim blaming and, and, you know, basically saying black people deserve, you know, what's happening to them. So he's doubled down. Uh, he was on Fox News again, and he's attacking the NAACP and, and engaging in more of the same. Now, what I just thought about reverse proxy racism. Okay. What if we could convince a Mark Wahlberg, somebody who has been convicted of a hate crime, all right, a violent attack, an assault, and he's seeking this. He's seeking to have his record pardoned so he can buy firearms and go hunting or or whatever. Um, instead of us looking at it from the standpoint of, no, no, don't give it to him. Don't get that racist. He did this. He did that. How about we use him as a proxy 
to get what we want. That's reverse proxy racism. Okay, Mark. Okay, what you did was wrong, man. It was very heinous. Okay, but guess what? We're going to support you on that if you will help us push this Redeem Act. If you will go out there and, and, and you know, um, use your star power to convince other white people who are the predominant population and voters, okay, to get behind Senator Rand Paul and, and Cory Booker's legislation. Wait, what are your thoughts? I, com- I completely agree. And, and, and like I said, I, I support anything that helps the affected people. And, and so with that, you know, even in my conversation with uh, Piper Kerman, which is essentially what you just laid out, um, I don't, I don't, I have a problem with uh, someone who, who, who was able to experience what she did and bounce back in the way that she did when we can't, we don't get that equal chance. But at the same time, I don't hold it against her personally. And, and, and being as though she is out front on delivering the message, I try to turn the volume up and, and help that message that she's delivering to echo to the people who may not have listened to it coming from me. And so while I may have my personal, you know, it's like, you know, come on, what? But, you know, it, hey, if it works, let it work. That's how I feel. I, I mean, uh, we got to change up the game or how we're playing the game because how we've been playing is not been winning, you know? Right. And so, you know, like uh, the counter races needed full of junior talks about racial showcasing. All right. And that's where the example he gives is where a black person, you know, who has, let's say a celebrity, uh, Oprah Winfrey, let's say uh, Oprah Winfrey. And then white people will point to those few successful, quote unquote, black people and say, hey, what's wrong with you? Why you can't do what they did? They were able to overcome and, and, and things of that nature. So you must not be doing something right. It ain't got nothing to do with uh, uh, systemic racism and, and whatnot. So, you know, I am the of the belief that white people are not superior. White people are not uh, more uh, intelligent. It, it is just that that they have had ever since they developed firearms, they have had the upper hand. And so, therefore, they were able to establish a nation based on racism, white supremacy and slavery. And so, you know, we're trying to we're trying to chip away at that system. But I think we need new tools. How come we can't racially showcase a Mark Wahlberg in, you know, in in terms of uh, getting all of these white people to get behind the Redeem Act, which will uh, end this lifetime punishment by way of criminal records? But Scott, and you know, this is, this is the funny thing about law. I think I, I, I said this. I think I've said this to you before. In my opinion, uh, we are known to be emotional people. We, we, you know, we, we we respond to this stuff emotionally as opposed to responding to it strategically or, or, or tactically. And so, what you're laying out is a, is a right and proper strategy for dealing with this. And something I've been thinking about for a while and acted on to a degree probably some people may think it's controversial, but in the same vein, I reached out to the NRA. And let me tell you why. I'm a firm, first of all, I'm a firm believer in being able to protect yourself, your family, and your property. That's number one. But the other reason is that when people run for office, even Democrats, even in the shadow of Sandy Hook, they were quick to be adamant and say, oh, we're not going to take away your Second Amendment right. That's right. You know, we, we act under color of constitution. And so my question to them then becomes, well, where are you on returning the Second Amendment right to people after they finish the sentence? 
Now, some may listen to that and say, we have enough problems with gun crime, but I'm not addressing that. I'm trying to get them to address equality of, of, of application of law. You follow me? Yes. I'm trying to get the NRA, who is so vocal on all of these things, to deal with the Second Amendment right, constitutional right. I want to hear from them why they are not speaking up more in, in this area over here. We see American citizens who are who their Second Amendment right is being kept from them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on, on the right now, you argue about the retention of rights, government overreach and everything like that, and over here it is being enacted. Mm-hmm. Why are you not speaking up? And I think more people should call them out on that. Again, it's not necessarily to be pro or anti the NRA or guns or whatever. It's the equal application of law. It's to raise the issue, the profile exactly. of the issue. Exactly. And put it out there for public debate. I, I certainly agree with you. Hey, uh, Robert F. Williams, I've been, you know, again, studying Negroes with guns. He got an NRA chapter. Well, it's, it's, you know, I, I didn't do it intentionally, but I did watch, um, Rosewood again last night. I tend to make myself mad again every so often. I watched it last night and it's always been, um, like I said, a thing of mine. I, I, I did serve in the military. Um, and it was, for me, it was, you know, I was there. I was in the Marine Corps. I was a grunt. I was in the infantry. And long before that is, even though I'm from New York City, I always went to summer camp. And a part of the summer camp was archery, all sports, and rifles. So it's just always my family's from the South. I've always had a, a, a background in shooting and, and, you know, wanting to be a hunter. I, was, I never was a hunter, but it was just always something that if I needed to provide food for myself and my family, I wanted to be able to do. Right, right. I think we need to, um, again, just like, like I said earlier in the conversation about rights, we kind of do the Heisman Trophy pose and we say, well, you know, not a part of this country. Well, they don't do nothing for me. And again, I understand that position. But when you push something away, it's easier for it to stay away from you. If we want, if we want equal treatment in this country, we have to claim it in all areas, even even in the area we may not want it. If somebody's giving away free food, even if I'm not hungry, if I know it's a hungry day coming tomorrow, I think I better go get that. Understood. Understood. Um, as we already wrap up the, the segment, um, here, here's what I learned from speaking, uh, with you today, brother Chris. Uh, what I learned is that criminal expungement or criminal record expungement only applies to certain misdemeanors. Um, and that may vary from state to state, whether you're dealing with, uh, state, um, so-called crimes or whether you're dealing with federal so-called crimes but what i'm gathered from the information that that we've discussed and and listening to that clip is that you know it's only misdemeanors uh, uh that are you know able to be expunged and also that what i learned was that okay if i find myself in the bind and i'm innocent and whatnot and they're stacking charges on me and for those that don't know what stacking charges is is where they come up with multiple charges from a single incident Okay, and and that's called stacking the charges. And the intent of stacking the charges is to get you to agree to not go to trial and take your chances before a jury. And I do recognize that's always a gamble as a non-white person in this system. Uh, But 
to keep you from going to trial where things might be found that, oh, this warrant technically was uh, not issued properly. So we got to throw all this evidence out in. And so we got to dismiss the charges. So they trying to get you to plead down, uh, even to plead a felony down to a misdemeanor. And then, like we heard in that clip, where the gentleman was lied to by his attorney, oh, it's a misdemeanor. It's not going to help hurt you. And, and now he's finding himself 10 years later still dealing with lifetime punishment, all right, from those misdemeanors. So I, I learned that, and I also learned that it is worth my time to promote and call uh, representatives in this area uh, that I'm in to get them to support of uh, the Redeem Act. I miss That's anything? Right. No, no, you didn't miss anything. But one thing, there's one thing I do want to correct. Um, when we're talking about state, the federal system, of course, applies to the entire country. But there's this thing called states' rights, where each state has the right to um, to establish its own process. And Can you so talk up a little bit, states. Brother Chris? Yes, sir. Hello? Yeah, I was just asking you to speak up a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. There are states that do allow the expungement of, cer of certain nonviolent felonies. Every state okay. is not the same. But in those states, you find a very small population of black folks also. So what I'm going to do, what, what you said is correct, but there are some states that will allow the expungement of felonies as well. What I want to do is make sure that I um, get to you by way of email or on Facebook the website that shows each state and its process for expungement in part. Okay, I'll certainly make sure I add that uh, to the program description as well as the uh, blog post on our other audio blog and uh, push it out through our networks. So in closing, uh, Brother Chris, did you have any final thoughts on, on this topic that um, you would like to embed in the minds of the listeners? Um, actually, yes, just that this is, this is now for me, this is a movement. Um, and it's a movement that's going to take the same form as, like I said, gay rights and, 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 and immigration in that I'm going to continue to, to say these things in different places and different spaces and draw more people to to get people to see that I understand why you don't really want to speak up. I understand that you kind of want to stick to the shadows, but the only way to make it better is to actually stand up and raise your voice so that people can see that, you know what, somebody is talking about this. Somebody does care. We do have a voice. Again, look at gay rights. You never thought that, that you would see gay marriage in this country just not too long ago. However people feel about it, right, wrong, or indifferent, you now have it where they said that would never pass. Immigration, a pathway to citizenship, however you feel about it. You would not, you know, several years ago people said that would never pass. And so when it comes to a law um, allowing for the expungement of misdemeanors and felonies, that's what we're hearing now. Oh, you'll never see it. Well, guess what? It takes us to make it happen. And I believe that we could actually see that here um, in the very near future as long as we put the work in to get it done. Well said, well said. All right, Brother Christopher, of course, you know, we're in regular contact, so, and you know the door is always open for you on this platform, Black Talk Radio Network, and anything, any articles, anything, you know, you need for me to push out, you know, through my networks, then don't hesitate, but you already know that, bro. Yes, sir. Thank you. 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 Thank
I appreciate you, Scotty. And to your listeners, this is this is where you need to get your information from. Scotty Reed keeps it one hundred. Thank you for that, Chris. You have a great great evening, brother. All right, you too. All right, that was uh Christopher Irvin, a social justice and criminal justice activist, and I certainly will be keeping up um with this Redeem Act. Um it sounds like yeah, that's why I asked him, because I know that he studies these issues in depth. He goes to these conferences with all of these lawyers and he's, he's putting questions to them and, and he's done his homework. He's done his research. And if he says that the Redeem Act is not window dressing and that it can really help potentially millions of people, you know, uh, uh, come out from under this form of racist oppression, then I believe him and, and I'm going to, uh, throw my support behind it 100%. I'll possibly even reach out to Cory Booker, uh, Rand Paul to get them to come on and, and talk about their bill. Um, I want to take, I, I do want to take a break. I am going to hit the news items that I said I was going to hit. Uh, but before I take a break, um, I want to share this news release while it's on my mind that uh, I just got today and published it today and working to get a guest speaker to come on uh, on a future program this week since the the protest is going to be held on February the 1st. And this is to highlight inhuman conditions inside of Alabama prisoners. Now, this is a prisoner led movement. It has been initiated by prisoners and of course they have help on the outside and uh so i've been you know um knowing some of these guys for a while and they are taking a courageous stand uh putting their lives on the line uh speaking out from behind you know the uh um the uh prison bars you know on the prison plantation so i i want to read this it's not very long so um, I, I know, you know, it's been said reading stuff is not good radio, um, but I'm here to inform you. I'm not here to enter- entertain you. All right. So uh, this press release came to me today uh, from the Free Alabama Movement. You can find them more about them. You can Google that. You can Facebook it. Um, they have a Facebook group, but go. they also have a website if it's still up, and that's Free Alabama movement.com uh demanding an end to the filthy living conditions on alabama's death row and a culture of violence carried out by officials throughout the states maximum security prisons families and friends of men women and children will hold a peaceful protest on sunday february the 1st it's sponsored by the free alabama movement the protest will begin at 11 a.m. in front of the St. Clair Correctional Facility located at 1000 Street, yeah, 1000 Street, Clair Road in Springville. Uh, FAM, again, that's Free Alabama Movement, was started by men in Alabama state prisons to expose the deplorable conditions and the slave labor inside the cement walls of the state's prisons. FAM has posted videos on YouTube in which over 80 men who are incarcerated in the Alabama Department of Corrections give their personal accounts about the inhumane living conditions they endure in Alabama prisons. Three Alabama maximum security prisons, SCCF, 
Holman Correctional Facility and Donaldson Correctional Facility are currently on lockdown. Men and women are confined to their 8 by 12 foot cells and their family members and friends cannot visit them. On January 25th, several men on death row at Holman held a peaceful protest. Holman officials have denied these men use of equipment to clean their cells. And these men are being forced to eat cold sack lunches three times a day. We are human beings. Just because we, we're on death row doesn't mean that we have to live like animals, said one death row inmate. The guards use pepper spray to punish the peaceful protesters. SCCF has turned into one of the most dangerous prisons in America, according to the fam. The prison's warden, Carter Davenport, was previously suspended for assaulting a prisoner in the head while the prisoner was handcuffed. Riot police have been called in at SCCF, according to FAM. In the last two weeks, there have been at least 20 incidents in which prisoners were stabbed at SCCF. Prisoner Jarvis Flame Jenkins was beaten twice by guards and was seen with blood dripping from his clothes. Another SCCF prisoner, Derek Lakeith Brown, has been hospitalized with injuries for a week. Prison officials have taken three SCCF prisoners, James Pleasant, Robert E. Council, and Melvin Ray, known as the FAM-3, out of their cells and threatened to kill them for exposing inhumane and illegal conditions inside Alabama prisons. For more information, contact Ann Brooks at 256-783-1010. 44. Again, that phone number is 256-783-1044. And again, I will, um, even if I have to do a pre-recorded interview and, and share it on one of the later broadcasts this week, even though we have guests all scheduled, I will make a way to, uh, get this representative of FAM on the air and get this information out. Again, this is 21st century slavery and human trafficking legalized by the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. There is no past slavery. There is no new Jim Crow. There is no mass incarceration. This is slavery. Okay, it is nothing more. It is nothing less. And it is time that we start talking about it for what it is. Going to take a break and then we'll come back. I want to talk about this this uh, exercise in proxy racism by this black sheriff. Um, I definitely want to get in for Dale Castro's comments on the USA and Cuban policy. And um, I really don't care about this, this uh, racist terrorist who's worm food right now. Uh, but his killer uh, who did the world a service is uh, coming up for trial. All right. You're listening to black talk radio, the live drive at five. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from Behind Enemy Lines. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium.
person, he can always raise an argument about law and order because he never talks about justice. But black people fall for that same argument and they go around talking about lawbreakers. We did not make the laws in this country. We are neither mor morally nor legally confined to those laws. Those laws that keep them up keep us down. You got to begin to understand that. For 400 years, she taught you white nationalism and you left it up. You taught it to your children. You had your children thinking that everything black was bad. Black cows don't give good milk. Black hens don't lay eggs. Black for funerals, white for weddings. That's white nationalism. Santa Claus. A white honky who slides down a black chimney and comes out white. equate progress with concessions. We can no longer make that mistake. You see, when they gave us that nigga astronaut, you say we were making progress, but I told you they were gonna lose him in space. He didn't get that far. You put Adam Clayton Powell in office and you couldn't keep him. What you think they're gonna do with Thurgood Marshall when they get tired of him? They gave you Walter Washington of Washington, D.C., and you say we were making progress. That's not progress. See, it's no in-between. You're either free or you're a slave. There's no such thing as second-class citizenship. That's like telling me you can be a little bit pregnant. of hip-hop is awful, straight terrible. It promotes death and destruction now. The original principles of hip-hop culture is peace, unity, love, and having fun. The principles of what we call slave hip-hop is violence, chaos, hate, and danger. Slave hip-hop must be abolished, and we must save African people from this nonsense and bring hip-hop back to where it used to be may appear a confusing blur of activity, each ant doing its own thing, but it can't be. Somehow the ants coordinate their actions so that large insects are overwhelmed, killed, and carried back to the base. Pears is dying, and my people are suffering. The money's still low, you should see how they budgeting. Just watch what comes out your mouth. People are suffering. It's elementary, they want to smoke on eventually. Pears is dying, people are suffering. The money's still low, you should see how they budgeting. Black Talk Radio Live Drive at 5, Scotty Reed in for this broadcast from behind these enemy lines. Uh, where they say liberty and justice for all, but, uh, that is a bunch of bull. Um, but you know, we out to change that by any means necessary. Um, yeah, I want to jump on this story right quick about this. Uh, man, it's just unfortunate to, uh, have to report on these things, but we can't ignore them. We can't ignore proxy racism because it's a tool of racism. When somebody is in, engaged in warfare against you, it makes no sense to, let's say, ignore their artillery, ignore their stealth bombers, and not try to come up with a way to neutralize those tools. And so that's why I talk about, while it pains me, you know, to highlight the, the mental, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to call it. I'm trying not to engage in name calling and whatnot. Um, 
it pains me to point out the mental illness that far too many people who look like us, who are non-white people, suffer from. You know, um, I guess they say the first step to recovery is identifying it, you know, but, you know, we had a conversation with David Clark, who is the sheriff of Milwaukee County in Wisconsin. When I say have a conversation, um, he did not come on the radio program. No, we engaged with him on his Facebook profile. That was myself, Max Parthas and Johanna and, and some of our friends, uh, fellow abolitionists. And we were trying to explain to this man his role in the system of white supremacy, his role in being a 21st century slave catcher. And he, you know, was engaging in all of this anti-blackness on Facebook. And of course, racist and, and white supremacists are going to to highlight a person like that. They're going to elevate them in the media and say to them, they're going to racially showcase them and say, see, this black man thinks black people are the problem. So yeah, it, it must be true. We're not, not only white people believe this, not only Fox News believes this, not only Rush Limbaugh believes this, but hey, here's a member of your community who believes it as well. And so David Clark uh, appeared on Fox News to not talk about the lack of uh, progress in the investigation of the bombing of the NAACP out there in Colorado. Um, I forget the name of the um, city it was located in, but it was in the state of Colorado. Still, I have nothing new to report. So he wasn't on Fox News to talk about you know, what is, you know, I thought we had all this modern technology and this and that and forensics and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, how come we can't identify, uh, this man? We were able to identify, you know, uh, nine, uh, 12 hijackers who flew planes into the, uh, World Trade Center within what, 24, 48 hours, but yet we can't find this man. Uh, we can't even come up with a name or address. So no, he wasn't on there to talk about that. He was on there to blame the NAACP and say that the NAACP, uh, was wrong to blame police for shooting black men. Now I haven't even had an opportunity to listen, uh, to this audio clip of him, uh, his appearance on the racist propaganda network, uh, Fox News, but I'm listening to the first time. Uh, along with you if you haven't heard it yet. Hi, police body camera video shedding light on a deadly shooting in Oklahoma. A warning, the images are graphic. Watch if you, if you wish. An officer makes the split-second decision to fire his weapon after police say this suspect, after going to be arrested, turns and decides to run. He faces the officer with a loaded gun. But the NAACP says the cop should have asked questions first. So what is their end goal? Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark saw this video, wanted to weigh in, and we want him to. Uh, well, Sheriff, what do you think about what we know so far? It looks like he was being arrested, decides to run, drops something to the side, said to be a gun, and he wouldn't stop, so the officer shot. Your, your review? Well, just from looking at the tape, and I know there's a lot more involved, but that's a good shoot. I mean, it's police vernacular and in legal uh, speak, it's a justifiable shooting. But there'll uh, be more investigation. Um, but there's something else here about the NAACP that needs to be said. This once proud organization that was a force for good has relegated itself into irrelevancy. And I challenge anybody to name the last significant accomplishment that the NAACP 
uh, has achieved in the United States for people of color. I would probably say it was the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And since then, this organization has become nothing more than a political propaganda right. entity for the left. So let's break this down in terms of what the NAACP should be focused on, and they can get this discussion started in the black community because we need to have it. Right. And it's the behavior of our young black men. Okay, let's unpack this thing for a minute. You got this young black man armed with a firearm, all right, illegally, stalking and terrorizing his girlfriend, all right? There's another problem there. And then he's standing outside a church where there's a, a wedding, and the pastor had to call frantically to get the police there because of this guy's behavior. So the discussion we need to be having, if the NAACP can lead it and stay off the police, is why is this stuff happening and what are we going to do about it? The number one cause of this, Brian, is father absent home. So what are we going to do uh, in terms of having more effective parenting, more role modeling, right. more engaged fathers in the lives of these young black men so that we don't have this behavior. The and, behavior is what we need to be talking about. And, by, and we'll put yourselves in, in your shoes there or, or your fellow officers. Uh, they get a call to go to a wedding because this 21-year-old is going to show up there. He has claimed that there's a uh, he's coming up there with a gun. And he's got a bullet with your name on it. So the pastor scrambles to call 911. So they know this guy is dangerous. He seems to have evil intentions. So that's the mentality of the officer pursuing uh, uh, this uh, this prospective suspect. Here's what the NAACP did say. He says there is this mentality out there of a shoot first, ask questions later, and I think emphasis should be placed on trying to take those people alive. And uh, the mom said uh, essentially they shouldn't have shot him. Uh, they should have just tried to catch him. What's your reaction? Well, what did his dad say? You know, we always hear what his mom said. And look, you know, mom loves her son. We all get that. But uh, the shoot first and ask questions later, anytime a law enforcement officer is in a situation where a gun is introduced by a suspect, yeah, it's shoot first, stop the threat, and then ask questions later. And also, when you run from the police, I'll tell you right now, you're headed toward a very dark place where things are not going to go well for you. And the reason is, and that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be shot and that you should die, but the fact is... That is one of the most dangerous situations an officer can be involved in, a foot pursuit. And then with an armed suspect, right. yeah, this is unfortunate. This has had to happen. But let's focus right. on the behavior of our young black men and not the police. Sheriff, I just hope people around the country aren't starting to question everything you guys do because that's a very dangerous place when we have trouble trusting law enforcement from sea to shining sea. Uh, Sheriff uh, Clark, thanks so much. It's always my pleasure. All right, 10 minutes before the top of the hour. Okay, I'm, I'm back. Um, number of things wrong there. I was taking notes while I was listening to, uh, that propaganda. All right. History. I'm gonna tackle that first. History of the NAACP. While I'm not in much disagreement with what he said about what has the NAACP accomplished since the 1964, um, um, uh, Voting Rights Act. I'm glad he didn't mention the school desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education, and I'm not going to uh, go off on into that and the harm that that has caused uh, the black community. But this is what I'll say about the NAACP. They've been good for putting certain issues out there in, for public discourse. Okay. Um, I don't judge every NAACP chapter by what its main uh headquarters does i don't judge them um i have had conversations and contact with 
uh, members of the NAACP at different county chapter levels in, in states. Uh, I think that um, the head of the North Carolina NAACP, NAACP, Reverend uh, Barber, what is Reverend Barber's first name? I can't think of Reverend Barber's first name, but um, he has been doing a good job at mobilizing people around you know, the underfunding of, of black schools and, and pointing that out. Um, they are also involved in the latest lynching to happen in North Carolina. Um, of course, I'm speaking of Lynn and Lacey. So I don't want people, you know, just like I feel like it's, it's wrong or incorrect for people to paint any kind of group of people or religion with a broad brush and subscribe, you know, what some of them may be doing to all of them, what this man just did. Uh, but I was reading again, uh, Negroes for, uh, Negroes with guns written by Robert F. Williams, uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And I forget the third author's, uh, name. And it talked about the failure of the NAACP to address uh, issues of Klan violence in the United States. I mean, in North Carolina, uh, they refused to get involved in the case of the what was known as the kissing case, where this uh, young white girl uh, who knew this young black boy uh, because his mother used to work for her mother and they used to play together, and she hadn't seen him in a in, in a you know while, and she kissed him on the cheek. And they charged this little boy and the other little black boy with raping, you know, this little white girl. Cause she wouldn't told her mother, Oh, I seen so and so and I kissed him on the cheek and her mother got all hysterical. And the next thing you know, uh, these boys being convicted of raping this child and sent off to reformatory. And, uh, they, and the NAACP was called upon to help in that case and they ignored it. Um, Robert Williams talks about. You know, all of every time they reached out to the NAACP national headquarters, how they just ignored them. I view the NAACP, which was not, which is a integrated organization, at least when it started, it was started by white people uh, and funded by white people. Um, I think the NAACP is a, a, what's a term, what's a, a phrase I could use? Um, it's a tool of proxy racism. You know, to seem like you're focusing in on serious issues and serious solutions, but really you got us going in circles. Okay. And, and so, you know, without jumping all over the NAACP again, I don't judge every member of the NAACP or every chapter of the NAACP by what the national NAACP, those people at the top are doing or not doing so I, I don't want people to get the wrong impression but just read the history of the NAACP um now he gets into talking about oh we should be talking about the behavior of young black men again subscribing and let me say this what that young black man did was incorrect of taking a gun uh, getting emotional cause his ex-girlfriend about to marry somebody else and taking a gun and issuing threats Totally incorrect behavior. All right. Now, I don't know all the details of the case, but it sounds like to me that um, he had a gun, that he ran away. He threw the gun away and continued to run away and was shot in the back. All right. So, yeah, I, I would not say that was justified. Uh, I don't think a death sentence um, is uh, justifiable. 
uh, in this particular case. Well, I don't believe in a death sentence, period, but I do believe that sometimes we do have to kill people to protect ourselves, okay? But it doesn't seem like these cops who killed this, this young man who was engaged in incorrect behavior, um, yeah, it seems like it was not, as he called it, a good shoot. All right. They, they shot a man while he was running away. Does that sound familiar? Okay. So, um, anyway, but he subscribed the behavior of this young man with, you know, like this is occurring. Uh, every young black man is engaged in, in this criminal, uh, behavior, this incorrect behavior. Again, you know, uh, people watch the media. They keep hearing people who, who look like us and, you know, those who don't look like us, uh, keep repeating this same thing over and over and over and over, but they never address the underlying issues. Okay. And so here he is, you know, demonizing young black men, period. You know, instead of talking about it in terms of this one individual, uh, who was engaged in incorrect behavior and just, you know, framing it around, uh, the things that happened leading up to him getting shot and whatnot. No, no, no. Let's blame all black men and, and portray them all as, as a bunch of gun toting thugs running around threatening people at weddings and whatnot. Okay. So yeah, um, that's incorrect on his part. That's incorrect on his part and it's intentional. On, in his part because I have been doing a little bit of background research into him and the things he's putting out there in the public. As I mentioned, we got into a conversation with him on Facebook, wasn't calling them names, wasn't, you know, uh, uh, yeah, name calling or anything like that, but trying to have a logical, uh, debate about the issues and his role in 21st century slavery and human trafficking and him, uh, participating in, you know, demonizing, uh, our people. All right. Now, I've written about this before. I've written an article about this. Next thing I'm going to focus on, I've written articles about it. I've done extensive research into it uh, going back several years because this this myth, this propaganda has been put out there a long time. He won't say, oh, why, where was the father? Why is the mother speaking? And, uh, the NAACP need to be talking about, uh, absent black fathers. Uh, his word was father absent homes, you know, so I'm not going to pick at his grammar because my grammar isn't all of that, but that was his words, father absent homes. Okay. Again, before I tell you why that's a lie, but first, again, for those homes that do not have a father, uh, living in them. Okay. With the mother and they're raising the children. All right. Not talking about, again, they're not talking about, well, why are so many black fathers missing and increasingly black mothers? Um, uh, because they are a increasing target of the, uh, 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Their numbers have been increasing. Um, okay. And so he doesn't talk about the drug war. He doesn't talk about poverty. He doesn't talk about, you know, not giving people a, crim a second chance when they have made mistakes that can be classified as crime. So no, none of that plays a role into it. It's just something wrong with black fathers. They just abandon their children. Well, that's a doggone lie. And I've written about it. I even the last time I discussed this 
was this film that was produced by another proxy racist tool. I forget the name of the company. It's an entertainment company and they made this documentary and it was promoting that same myth. It was talking about, uh, unmarried black mothers. That's what it was talking about. Not to mention that just because a person is unmarried and doesn't have a piece of paper from the state, that doesn't mean they're single. Yeah, it was an issue of semantics with me uh, because I did the research. And a lot of people, period, not just black people, don't get married. They cohabitate, all right? They don't go to the state and get permission or pay for a license to get married and all this and that. And I know that's promoted for religious reasons or whatever as some kind of tool to heal uh, what's wrong with the black community. Uh, but that that's wrong. Just because a woman may be listed as a single head of household on her tax return, that doesn't mean that she isn't, that the father of her children is not involved, is not cohabitating with her. Uh, maybe they decided to file a, a separate, because they don't have that piece of paper, they decided to file separate tax returns, and only one of them could put themselves as head of household. And, and so the other person just, you know, claimed probably an easy 1040 or something like that and not putting himself out there. So that's what I'm saying, man. People just say stuff and it is not a reflection of what the actuality of the situations are. So, uh, but on his claim that all of these black fathers are absent again, we have been having that conversation for a long time, but on more on my end, I've been talking about, well, this is a doggone straight up lie. All right. But I have seen organizations and advocates who promote father involvement with their children. OK. All right. Uh, Michael Brown had two fathers, a stepfather and a father. Um, Trayvon Martin was visiting his father when he was gunned down. His father was part of his life, even though him and his mother were divorced. Uh, Jordan Davis. Uh, his parents were divorced, but they both were involved in his lives, in his life. Okay. So again, you know, this is just pushing out there, this propaganda to portray black women as being whores, just pushing out babies with no fathers to, to portray black men as horny dogs, just going around pregnating, impregnating all of these women and not taking responsibility for the, the children. This is all lies. This is all lies. Now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published, and this is an article. This isn't my article because I couldn't pull it up that fast. But this article was published in January, on January 16, 2014, The Myth of the Absent Black Father. Uh, it was written by a black female, I, I presume, Tara Culp. Wrestler, it doesn't have her picture, so I'm going to assume this is a black woman, uh, but I could be incorrect. All right, now she um uses data gathered from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which had published new data on the role that American fathers play in parenting their children. Uh, most of the CDC's previous research on family life which the agency explores as an important contributor to public health and child development, has focused exclusively on mothers. But the latest data finds that the stereotypical gender imbalance in this area doesn't hold true. And dads are just as hands-on when it comes to raising their kids. That includes African-American 
fathers. Now, let me just share some of the data because I actually use this graph um, that she shares in a, a propaganda piece that I made, um, you know, a image or a meme as they call them these days, uh, where I was calling out that film and I put the data up. Uh, and so anyway, it says that um, it's a color coded graph. It focuses on Latino, white and black fathers. Uh, it says fathers. It has two categories, father living with kids, father not living with kids okay i'm just gonna uh go through these each one um individually as quick as i can so bear with me because it's always good to put out the information now look children under the age of five fed or ate meals with their children daily okay uh black men led in the category uh 78.2 percent of these fathers ate a meal with their children on a daily basis. All right. Black men leading the way. All right. Uh, Latino men came in second, 73.9%. And white men came in third, 63.9%. Uh, father not living with kids that had, uh, meals with their children daily. Black men, 12.6%. Uh, Latino men. No, I'm sorry. I had it backwards. Um, let me give the correct information. White men, 73.9% came in second with fathers living with children. Latino men came in third. All right. Now, um, for father not living with kids, 12.6. Black men lead the way. Uh, white men, they didn't have any data whatsoever. No statistical data whatsoever. So we'll call that zero. All right. Uh, Latino men. Uh, 8.6% of them had meals with their children. And it goes on to talk about, look, um, and I'm not even going to read the percentage points, but I'll just tell you who came in what. Bathed, diapered, or dressed children daily. Uh, living with kids, fathers with kids. Uh, black men and white men were nearly tied. Okay. Um, Latino men came in third. Uh, father not living with kids. Black men led the way. Uh, white men came in third, Latino men came in second. Read the children daily, fathers living with children. Uh, black men led the way, followed by white men, followed by Latinos. Uh, not living with children, black men lead again. Uh, white men come in second. And uh, there's no statistical information for uh, Latino men. All right, children ages 5 to 18. Uh, again, same categories, eight meals with children daily. All right. A father living with kids. Now in this one, Latino men led the way. Uh, then white men came in second and then black people, uh, black men came in, uh, close third. Um, fathers living without children. Okay. Uh, they ate, I'm sorry, that were not living with their children, but ate meals daily with them. Uh, black men came in. Second, white men came in first, Latino men came in third. Uh, talk to children about their day daily. No, took children to or from activities. Uh, black men led the way, followed by white men. No, followed by Latino men, then followed by white men. I, okay, I'm not going to go through the rest of them. Um, the rest of them shows that, uh, black men led the way, talked to children about their, uh, day daily. Um, help children with homework or check that they were finishing their homework daily. Um, 
that one's important because it pertains to education. All right. Black men living with the children, 40.6%. Uh, white men, 28.1%. Latino men came in second, 293 All right. So again, and, and the same, it, it follows the same trend for the fathers not living with the children. So where, why is this man, this, this proxy racist tool of racism, Repeating this propaganda, Mr. David Clark, a sheriff of Milwaukee County in Wisconsin, who wants to turn an incident of one black male getting emotional about his ex-girlfriend, about to marry somebody else and, and uh, issues a threat. And and then when the police confront him, oh, he runs away, throws the firearm away, and they continue to sh- chase him and shoot him. All right. So why is he... How does he get from this one incident to all black men are engaged or young black men are engaged in this type of activity to uh there are no black men in the homes? When the government statistics from the Center for Disease Control put this information out that I just shared with you. See what I'm saying? You see how you see, but like Hitler said, if you tell a big lie, I don't care how big the lie is. And if you keep repeating it over and over and over, the lie becomes a fact. So, um, yeah, that's all I got to say about him. That's all I got to say about him. I'm not even going to jump on to, um, the, uh, terrorist sympathizer, John McCain, uh, who has a history of supporting terrorists, uh, not only terrorists that, that, uh, are over there, uh, in Iraq and Syria, you know, he had his little photo out with them, um, uh, people known to have kidnapped other, uh, Muslims, Shia Muslims, uh, going on pilgrimage. Uh, he also supported with dollars, I may add, with a donation, uh, which was against the law, um, to the Contras in South America, supporting death squads. And, um, you know, they were being trained in America during Reagan's administration. And so, uh, I'm not even going to get into, um, it's no surprise that he is, uh, defending this D- Department of Defense propaganda called American Sniper, where it has whitewashed the image of this, uh, racist monster and killer uh Kyle whatever his name Chris Kyle or whatever his name is so anyway but I will share with you briefly um Fidel Castro uh leader of the revolution 1959 revolution uh when Cuba people rose up um lots of black people participated in that um because they were the predominant population so a lot of people don't talk about that all right. But anyway, when they rose up and overthrew the uh, corrupt and brutal regime of Batista, um, yeah, uh, he was the leader of that revolution. All right. Now, he's commenting on the Obama administration's latest move to lift um, or ease the sanctions or lift the embargo and normalize uh, ties. But this is what Fidel had to say. He said, I don't trust the policy of the United States. But this does not mean I reject a Pacific solution to the conflicts, uh, Castro said. Um, let me see if I can find more quotes from him. However, it does not mean I reject a specific resolution to the conflicts. We will always defend cooperation and friendship with all the people of the world, including our political 
adversaries. And of course, uh, here it is, uh, John McCain, uh, gotta interject his, his racist white supremacist self into everything. But John McCain, Lizzie Graham, and Jeb Bush, uh, have harsh words and calling saying this is appeasement of our enemies and thugs and adversaries. And I'm quoting them thugs in, a, in, a, uh, uh, yeah, called the new initiative and appeasement of autocratic dictators, thugs and adversaries, which is demi diminishing America's influence in the world. They also believe America and the values it stands for is in retreat and decline. Well, I just wish that was true that I could come on this air uh, tomorrow and say racism, global white supremacy is in decline and uh, receding because that's the values of America's foreign policy. Let's not mince words. Let's not play games. Uh, it, it's all based on racism, white supremacy. How dare these formerly enslaved Africans uh, overthrow this proxy of the not only the U.S. government, but the mob as well. So, again, you know, people, we're not taught history, so I'm not blaming you. But at some certain point in your life, you have to invest time into doing research on these kind of issues instead of just accepting uh, what, what was read to you or you read yourself in these government approved school books and, you know, documentaries put out by PBS and, and whatnot. We cannot. Uh, I mean, the history shows that these people are deceptive, that they don't have a problem with lying, and that they have always kept things from us. And so it's a, it's incumbent upon us as individuals to educate ourselves and, and find independent sources and get the other side of the equation and not only educate ourselves, but our children uh, as well. All right, so that's my program. I want to thank my guest, uh, Mr. Christopher Irvin, for coming on and talking about uh, criminal record expungement. Uh, it is a very important topic. And for pointing out to us that this uh, Redeem Act is worth supporting. All right, so don't listen to the mainstream media try to say, oh, Ron, Rand Paul, uh, yeah, he's in the Tea Party and this and that. Uh, his father 20 years ago was connected to this racist newsletter. Look, 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 look. Look at the legislation. Okay. Judge the legislation. Don't judge the man. All right. Judge the legislation. Of course, we always look at people like that as suspects and, and rightly so. But judge the legislation by reading it for yourself and see if it has any merit to it or if it's something like Harold Johnson is pushing that really don't amount to a hill of beans. You know, so anyway, yeah, that's my program. Uh, let's see. I will be back on air. Um, Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with my comrades on New Abolitionist Radio where we talk about 21st century slavery and human trafficking and ways to combat it. We hope that you will tune in. Peace and blessings to all.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.